morning. How are you guys doing? Everybody doing well? We're like into school. We're, we're doing all the things. Is everybody tired yet? Maybe a little bit. You know, it's so funny. Like we're so tired at the end of the summer, right? And then you get like, I just can't wait for school to start. And then school starts. You're like, when is it summer again? Right? Like, you know, I know I have students in my house and they're like, seriously, I had one, you know, that they just had meltdown over homework. Like, I, I'm not supposed to do this, all this homework. And I'm like, well, if you want a grade, you actually have to do it. You know, you ever feel like life feels that way too? Like, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, all this stuff in my life. And you're like, yeah, but I've got things I've got to pay for and things I've got to do and things that people need of me. So I don't know. But a great morning of worship. Thank you so much for being here. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors. Glad that you're with us. If you're a visitor in the room, so glad that you guys have joined us this morning. And so uh, thank you so much also for you guys joining online. Last week, we had Mission Sunday. If you didn't get a chance to, to see that, we encourage you to go back and watch it. We had a, a panel up of ladies who had gone on mission trips this past summer, and, and I thought it was a really fruitful time. I love just the themes of just, one, just the idea that God calls us to go, right? Like, He calls us to go, and He sends us out. But then, two, just how He uses each of us just uniquely where we are. And I think sometimes we, we think, well, I can't do that, or I because I don't have this gift, or that's for someone else to do. But the more and more I think about it, it's the, the idea is, though, actually, we all have that mandate. We all have that call where we could be Jesus' hands and feet and salt and light no matter where we are. So I just enjoyed that conversation. I hope you guys were encouraged. I certainly was. And for me, like, I want to, you know, continue to see what that looks like uh, for us as a church, what it means to go just here in Arlington, but then also, like, where else God might be sending us? And so two weeks ago, we're in, uh, we were in a study in First uh, Corinthians called Better Together, and we ended chapter 9 two weeks ago with Paul encouraging the church at Corinth to run the race. You know, like I said, you know, it's two weeks, three weeks in the school. We're already, like, running the race. Um, and Paul was saying, hey, run the race for the goal that's set before you, for obtaining a prize, you know, I had a my my oldest had her uh, first cross country meet yesterday, and you know, and and it was hot and it's humid because we got all that rain, and and what she didn't know was that this course that she was running had a very large hill, you know, and so like as you can imagine, like running that hill, and like gosh, I just want to get done, you know. Paul says that like he acknowledges that we all have things in our life that we were just trying to complete the course or the the road that's in front of us but Paul was saying no in our faith journeys and our spiritual journeys no actually we're supposed to run the race not just the finish but to run it in such a way that we obtain a prize and so for Paul he says and I did not say this to her yesterday because I think I would have gotten punched in the face because there's a couple times I was trying to cheer her on and she look back at me and, you know, from 150 yards away, I could see the death glare. You know, if you've ever gotten a death glare from a, a loved one or a child, you know what I'm talking about. And so I got the death glare a couple of times. And Paul is saying, hey, it's easy to run the race for easy things. But actually what he's encouraging us is to run the race for the hard things. Run the race for the hard things. Those are the imperishable things. You know, and so as I said, life is filled with hard things. There's work and there's parenting and there's education and teaching and illness and finances and family but hard things are worth the effort amen 
Hard things are worth the effort. Another thing I was thinking about, something I enjoy, is rock climbing. And you're like, okay, here we go. But, you know, but here's the thing. There's a hard aspect of rock climbing, and it's summed up in this phrase. And it's this. It's, you can either climb to fall, or you could climb not to fall. You could either climb to fall or climb not to fall. And so you're like, well, does it, at one point you fall, either it's controlled or not. Well, that's true. Like, you've got to come down some way. Like, hopefully you don't bounce your head off the wall, but if you climb to not fall, you never get any better because you don't push yourself, right? You don't push yourself. You never put yourself in territory that's beyond your capability where you're going to slip and fall off, right? You know, if you, if you climb not to fall, you know, if you climb to fall, you put yourself in that territory, and that's where it gets kind of scary because if you fall, like, you fall, and like, is the rope going to hold? Is the person that's blaming me going to, is, is, are they paying attention? Or are they talking or looking at something else? You know, you see uh, stories on, or videos on YouTube all the time of people like bl- blame people incorrectly, and you're like, no, that could have actually really hurt them, you know, and so, and you know how social media is, nobody ever chimes in on, like, that's the wrong way, you should do it this way or that way, right? But there's this thing in rock climbing called whippers, that's what they call them, they call them whippers, and so the idea is, when you fall, you fall so out of control that you're swinging around and you have to catch yourself and push yourself off the rock face as well. And, and the scary thing about it is, is whatever slack is in the line, you fall. So if I've got like 10 feet of slack in my line, well, I'm going to fall 20 feet because that slack has to go through and it takes another 10 feet to get it all the way through. So you fall double the amount. And that's the kind of, I don't know about you, but that's kind of how it feels like with our spiritual walk, at least with mine. It's the Sometimes I, I walk my spiritual journey not to fall, but falling's a part of it. Sometimes I fall, and I fall hard. You guys ever feel that way? And so in chapter 10 this morning, Paul's going to talk about footing and falling. And, 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 and he's encouraging the Corinthians in one part, but he's also warning them, hey, you need to make sure you have, where you, pay attention to where you put your next foot. And so how the Corinthians are falling uh, this morning in chapter 10 is they still want to attend the things they did before Jesus. Now, on some hands, that's okay. But on some other ways, as an example this morning, it's not okay. And so for them, it's the, you know, they participated in the cultic meals in the temples. But after placing their faith and trust in Jesus, those things are no longer congruent with their faith. You can't make the equal signs match each other on both sides of the equation. And so I think the thing for us this morning is when Christians do not reject the things that are of the world that are incongruent with faith in Christ, it presents a larger boulder for us to navigate. On one hand, it's okay to eat food sacrificed in temples. We talked about that weeks ago. But on the other hand, is it okay to be at those dinners or not where it's just wildly unpopular and ungodly? Might be popular, but might be ungodly. So there's our scene for this morning in chapter 10. Paul's talking to the church that are saying, they're saying, no, 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 we want to do those things. I think our friends are probably there, those things. But how does that relate to our personal walk with Jesus? And so if you want to do some further study after today, you've got a study guide that you can pick up on the way out. But I'm going to read verses 1 through 22 out of chapter 10 this morning over us. And, and what I like about chapter 10 is there's this thing called types and shadows, Right, the Bible uses types and shadows. He uses shadows of the real thing. Like our relationship with Jesus now is a shadow of what our relationship is going to be fully be on the backside of eternity in heaven. 
See that? Like that's a shadow of things to come. The law, the Old Testament law, was a shadow of the things to come as Jesus fulfilled that. And that's kind of what Paul's talking about in, in chapter 10 this morning. So I just want to read this over you. For verse 1, it says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. We'll get there. Verse 6, now these things took place, here you go, type and shadow, as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, not not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may not be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are those, not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I simply imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to the demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the, cup, and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I like it that he asked that because I think sometimes the way we order our lives, the way we live our lives, it's as if we're saying, actually, no, we're stronger than God. We're good. I'm good. You're good. I'll let you know when I need you. But Paul say, no, actually, hold on a second. You're not. You shouldn't live that way. And you should live differently. And so verses 4 and 5, uh, just quickly, I uh, want to look at some things this morning. Why is Paul writing to New Testament Christians who know Jesus and live under a covenant of grace? Why is he talking about the wilderness and Israelites? If you know the story, Israel was in captivity and they, God brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness, eventually got to the promised land. And so you're like, well, hold on a second. I'm the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. I'm a New Testament believer. We're different. We're different because that's the law. We're not under the law. You hear that a lot. New Testament is under a covenant of grace. The Old Testament is under the covenant of laws, which is true. And we're different, but we're also the same. And this is the type and shadow of what I was talking about. Idolatry, by the way, can be present no matter which covenant you live under. It's true. Idolatry is present everywhere. Whether you live under the law or you live under the covenant of grace, or maybe you don't live under a covenant at all, which is still a covenant, by the way. Like, when you hear someone say, well, I, you know, I just believe, I don't believe in any religion. Well, that's a religion. It's just 
the religion that happens to group all the things together. But Jesus put away the ceremonial law, right? That's good, right? He, he said, like Paul says in Romans, he came to not abolish it, but to fulfill the law. But the reality of it is, is God's moral code, the things that we should do, how we interact with him and how we should interact with each other, that began in the garden, right? So this is tracing it all the way back to Adam and Eve when God said, hey, you could eat of all the trees, but don't eat of that one because you will surely die. What happened when Adam and Eve ate that, of that tree? They made themselves God or they wanted to make themselves God, which is the first idol. And that's the reality. Like, it's for me, like, I don't know about you, but for me, like, I like what I like. I want what I want. And what, in effect, I'm saying is, is, no, my way is more important than your way, God. And I could be almost level with you, which makes me an idol of my own heart. But Jesus doesn't abolish the moral code that started in the garden. He just abolishes the ceremonial law. And just 1 through 5 again. For I want you to know that our fathers were all under the cloud, right? And you notice that they passed through the sea. They were baptized. They all ate the spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. Sound familiar, doesn't it? Does it sound like communion? That's because it is. Well, wait, well, hold on a second. Jesus did communion on his last night with his disciples, which is true, but he also did it here. The wilderness experience is a type and shadow of the new covenant in Jesus in Egypt, and the Israelites were, of course, were slaves and free to wander. But just that first one, the baptism piece, they walked through the water and the sea, right? It said it there. They passed through the sea. And so just get this picture for just a second. If, they, if you know the story, Egypt's armies are coming down on them. The Israelites are fleeing. Moses has all these people, which I don't know how you move all those people with no megaphone or no technology, but they've, they're all falling, and they hit the, the bank of the Red Sea. And they're like, well, now what do we do? We're trapped. And if you know the story, Moses puts his staff in the water, and the waters part. And so if they stay on the side of the Red Sea where Egypt is, they're dead. They're dead, right? Because the army, uh, Pharaoh's army is coming. But then they cross through the waters onto the other side. And they move from de sure death, certain death, into life. And so Egypt crossing the Red Sea is a type and shadow of baptism. The idea of if you are baptized, you go down into the water dead, but you raise up into spiritual life in the model of how Jesus did it. Spiritual food, miracle bread that came from the heaven, right? Miracle bread, right? The manna, they didn't have any food, right? They were moving too quickly. Miracle bread falling from heaven, they grumbled about it, right? It went stale, if you know the story. The miracle bread from heaven is a type and shadow of Jesus coming from heaven and his body is symbolizing the bread that was broken for you and for me. So even in the desert, God provided the bread, the body, the, you know, the, the shadow of Jesus that was broken for you and for me. And then finally, the drinking the water from the rock in the desert, the type and shadow of the rock representing Jesus. Paul says... You drank from the rock, and the rock was Christ. Pretty hard to miss that point, right? Like, it's Jesus. They didn't know who Jesus was yet, but they were certainly participating in him in baptism and the rock. And so the water, if you know baptism, the, the juice and the, the last meal, representing Jesus' blood that was spilled for you and for me. Just love this image of the nation of Israel who has no idea who Jesus, God in the flesh, is yet, but is being sustained by himself. In the desert. And then we get to verse 5. 
And nevertheless, and you know, this is me in my life for most of, most things. It's the I'm, I'm pretty good most of the time, and I've got this one part of my life that I hate, you know, and it's always not pleasing to God. But verse five, the same was true for the nation of Israel, and it references Numbers fourteen through uh, chapter fourteen, verse twenty nine. I just want to read that quickly. And he says this, verse twenty nine. Got to get it closer. There you go. Hey, here we go. You know when you know when you're you're getting up in age when you're like I can't really read this anymore. So there you go. I can still read it. I just said that for y'all. Well, anyway, there it is. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my he- uh, hearing, I will do to you. That's verse twenty-eight. It sets up verse twenty-nine. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census for twenty-three years old and upward. Who have grumbled against me. That's what Paul's referencing there. Where he says in verse 5 back in chapter 10. He says nevertheless with most of them God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. This is harsh reality. This hard reality of that in God's graciousness and, and supply. That he also expects something from you and me. And expected something from the nation of Israel. And expects something as Paul was saying for, for the Corinthians. And Paul is using this as an example for Corinth and for us. And what's the observation, what's the example teaching is this. So here you go, this idea. They passed through the sea. They ate the bread. God supplied the water. He gave them all the stuff they needed to survive the desert. That's the wilderness, right, if you've seen it. Like, and how in the world, how long did they travel the wilderness before they entered the promised lands? by no? Yeah, how in the world do you just walk around that loop for 40 years and not ever figure out where you're getting to go? Like, I don't think you need a, an iPhone to do that. But for, for whatever reason, it's true. But here's observation number one. No amount of religious participation will make you holy before a holy God. What is required is your heart in submission. It's not about the things. As much as we make it about the things, it's not about the things. The baptism, the bread, the water did not secure Israel's place in the promised land. God did on behalf of their obedience. And so why did they fall? And you're like, well, why would God go through all the trouble and then, and then they fall anyway? It's verse 7 in chapter 10. And it says that people sat down to eat and drink. The idea they sat down and were repentant before God is they, you know, you've got Moses on the mountain and we don't know how this calf showed up, this golden cow, but we thought we'd worship it. It's an idol. It's pretty cool, you know. And Moses is like, what is going on? You know, but then they got back up to play. They didn't show true repentance. Repentance means you change. Now, it might take a while to change, but it's the, no, my heart really desires this change. Which brings us to observation number two. When we refuse to confess or acknowledge the idols in our lives, we reject the mercy and forgiveness that God offers. You reject the mercy and forgiveness that God offers. Part of the problem is we have to say, well, maybe this is a problem. Right? Maybe that's an idol. And then verse 9, you know, this one, you know, you come across these verses and they're chilling. They're a little hard to navigate. It's verse 9 for me. It's uh, they tested God, but no, they actually tested Christ. When you test God, you actually test Christ. Just like God was the giver of of the, the, the way out, the escape, the baptism, the bread, the water, and the wilderness. Christ is the giver of spiritual life for you and for me. But when we actually test God, we're actually testing Christ. 
That's, you know, like, and, 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 and for me, it's the, well, if I was, if Christ was sitting there, would I actually do that? Probably not, right? Because I want to put on my best behavior and, and act like I've got it all together and I, like I would never do those things. But, but yet we do it all the time spiritually when we, don't, when we refuse to acknowledge the idols that we have. And then Paul goes on to give examples of how they were overthrown. The serpents, the angel, the destruction, if you know those stories. In verse 11. These things were given as an example to them for our instruction. They were given as an example to them. So Paul's saying, hey, church at Corinth, let me tell you the story of what happened a long time ago so that you are not doomed to repeat the same mistakes. That's why we tell stories. That's why we tell stories to our kids. That's why our parents told stories to us. That's why we tell stories to our friends, right? It's a, so here, let me help you out because I've been down that road. I know where that road goes. You don't want to go down that road, or actually, it's a, I've been down that road. You should go down that road. It's not always in the negative. And so Paul's saying to the church at Corinth, like, hey, here's all this stuff, but then this happened. Which brings me to observation number three. We should take advantage of others' examples and situations and use them as instruction in our own lives. You ever had that conversation, right? Or you, we all have that friend or that family member. Maybe it's us, you know, but it's the, yeah, they just keep doing the same thing over and over, you know. And then what's the definition of insanity? It's doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting what? A different result. A different result. And how often do we do that spiritually? God, it's cool. I, I, I'm, I'll see you on Sunday. I'm, we're fine. You know, I'll try to spend some time in prayer, just be in a relationship with you, whatever that looks like, right? But when we get to Sunday, like, I'm on. I'm in. I'm engaged. And, and, and that's, the, you know, how life goes. I'm so super busy. I've got stuff all over the place. I have little time for you. But on Sunday, I'm going to make time for you. You know, let me just tell you, like, that's, and I'm just saying this for me, too, because it's hard for me, too. I've got kids. I've got stuff in my world that, you know, try to pull my attention but being just engaged on Sunday is the biggest idol ever. It's the biggest idol ever. It's true. It's the biggest idol because God doesn't want us to be engaged on a Sunday and then we go back to our thing and our lives. He wants us to be engaged with him all throughout the week. All throughout the week. What does it look like for us to make room for God? You know, we live our lives like this is the spiritual promised land on a Sunday, but then we wander through the wilderness. I wonder why Paul's saying, hey, let this be a lesson to you. Don't doom yourself to repeat the same mistakes. Which then leads into verse 12. Take heed lest you fall. I just want to read it again. Therefore, let anyone who thinks... That he stands, take heed lest he fall. So here's the idea. Israel thought they stood. They were they told they stood, right? They were God's chosen people, but yet some fell in the desert. And so Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, they fell in the wilderness because of their idolatry, the idolatry that, that is in their hearts. But if you think you're good, maybe you should double check. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not secure in our place with Jesus, but then for some reason we still need to double check, not on him, but where our heart is. See the difference? That's the difference. It's the, 
Well, no, if you have to keep checking, then you're just talking about works. Now, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, is Jesus's death and life and burial and resurrection is enough, period, period. We are eternally secure in him at all times. But my heart, that stands firm, right? I remember Jesus' heart stands right in the middle, but my heart moves backwards and forwards and around and away from and toward all the time. That's what Paul's saying. Take heed lest you fall. Israel fell in the, uh, in the wilderness. Corinthians are doomed to, to make the same mistake. And if you don't learn from them, you will fall with them. And so verse 12 should give us all a pause. Because if we don't learn, we, we could fall. Right? But the reality of it is, is Jesus is the one that makes us secure. And so that's the point. Paul's saying, yeah, I mean, it's fine to eat food. It's fine to live your lives. God has put you where you live for a reason and a purpose. But if your life looks more like the culture as opposed to him in you, are you in a right place? Or are you not? I don't know. Only we know. I mean, you all assume that I'm in the right place with the Lord, but that maybe it's not true. I don't know. Like, only I know between me and God. Which leads to another more famous verse in the Bible, which is verse 13. No temptation. Everybody, everybody quoted this to yourselves? Who, who is this one, right? Everybody's quoted this one, right? I like this one too. It's no temptation has overtaken you. Man, by the way, I just want to say, like, I know the Bible's true, but if that's ever happened to you, man, that's really hard to square with this verse, by the way, right? Like, you know, I'm going to be good today. I'm not going to run somebody over. I'm not going to murder them in my heart. And then I have all the opportunities to murder people in my heart all day long. Has that ever happened to you? Right? Like, I don't know why that is, but for some reason, Paul writes, and I believe it, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to me. Oh, oh, there it is. There's the other line. Right? I forget, like, I shouldn't be tempted. No, actually, he's saying anything that we feel is something everybody else feels. But then he says this, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Sometimes, so I'm like, I think we square the idea, like, well, you said I won't be tempted, and no, God says I won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. So if you find yourself in that spot a lot, maybe it has something more to do with your ability as opposed to God's faithfulness, which begs the question. If we don't learn from those who have lived before us, we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes. But I like this too. He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. I love that. God in his faithfulness will not allow you and me and the Corinthians to be tempted beyond our ability. He will make a way like the Red Sea. How many times have I walked through dry ground, through the Red Sea, over and over and say, God, I'm so thankful. Thank you so much. I don't ever want to put myself in that position again. And then pretty soon there's another Red Sea right in front of me. It's another Red Sea right in front of me. Or like the desert with no food and water to endure. Right? He certainly didn't do it with Job. I mean, that famous story, right? Job lost everything and lost everyone and everybody left his side, but he never left God's side. Talk about ability. But God knew. I want that kind of ability. Which brings us to observation number four. When we are tempted, or excuse me, spiritual temptation is our modern day wilderness. But God is faithful. We have choices all the time to align ourselves with him or we don't. But that's our modern day wilderness because with iPhones and GPS and maps, like there's virtually anything, not a lot that we don't run across that's been discovered. 
but when we are tempted, verse 14 says, run in the op- opposite direction. This is part of running your race, by the way. Sometimes we have to run and then run in a different direction, but it's still the same course that God has us on, fleeing the immorality of the world or the idolatry. That's the thing. Paul, Travis said it uh, several weeks ago. Like You want to you figure out how to endure temptation, just run. You don't have to stand there and fight it and say, I'm stronger than you. Just flee. But for some reason, I think because humans like to make themselves, I do this, right? Like, I'm good and I can handle this. That's the worst phrase, right? Spiritually, if you, if you find yourself saying, no, I've got it, I'm good, I can handle this. The reality of it is we can't handle anything. And that's because God makes it that way because he wants us to need him. He wants us to want him. He wants us to glorify him. And there's the reorientation. If my life is about me and saying, look at me, look at how good I am, versus just giving God glory, that's what God's chief aim is, is to him to stand brightest and tallest and furthest above everyone. So flee. Flee. Corinthians, Paul's saying, hey, Corinth, just don't go. Flee. Somehow you could eat food, sacrifice, and temples, but you don't have to participate in the thing, and those things can stand in tension with one another, which brings us to the linchpin of the passage this morning in 19 and 20. I'll read it again for a reminder. After Paul says, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat sacrifices, participants in the altar, he says this, what do I imply then? This is the thing. This is the problem. Can the Corinthians go to a cultic dinner at the temple and still be there and be clean before God? And Paul says this. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. No, I imply that what pagans, pagan sacrifice, pagan just by the way, at one point we were all pagans just so you know. Someone who didn't know Jesus. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. There you go. That's the linchpin. What, is, what does it look like? There's a difference between eating food and participating in godly practices for the church at Corinth. There's a difference between eating and participating. And so here's the thing. If you allow idols in your life or actively participate with them, we practice demon worship at the behest of Christ, according to Paul. That's it. That's it. If they're in there or we participate with them. But but here's the other side of things. If you never take time to find your idols in your heart, you're allowing the practice of demon worship to exist in your life. And so the harsh reality is, is what? So you're like, oh, shoot, who's he talking to? Well, first of all, Paul's talking, but I think he's talking to me. I think he's talking to you. I think he's talking to the Corinthians, too, because the reality of it is, is we all have idols. I do. You do. Corinthians did. Do. We all have them because, you know, there's a famous theologian. He said the heart is an idol-making factory, and they churn them out all the time. Churn them out all the time. So here's the idol spectrum. So like, well, okay, what are you talking about? Because there's no satanic, cultic, temple places where we go have meals. Okay, well... Now, I'm not going to make that joke. But anyway, okay, so there you go. So what is an idol for us? What's the idol spectrum is kind of what I was thinking about. So let me just put it to you this way. It's, it could be big. It could be small, right? It could be satanic. It could be harmless. Like, okay, obviously, you know, like you, you think satanic. Like, I don't do that. But there are also harmless idols in our lives, too. 
That's no big deal. It's just hanging out. It can be accepted by culture or not accepted by culture. Right? Here's another one. It can be changing the gospel or the Bible to suit your perspective instead of God's. That's a big one. Right? We've been talking about that for weeks. It's the, do I actually bend my life around the idea of the gospel or do I bend the gospel around my life making me the center of and the master of the universe? It could be good intentions. It could be sinful. Or here's another one. Can we, do we consume our way to Christ or do we serve our way to Christ? And then I said a, a second ago, you know, I think the biggest one is, is I'm fully engaged on a Sunday morning and I leave little room or thought to what my relationship with God looks like throughout the week. That's the biggest idol facing the American church, period. Because what we've been taught is that we can consume our way to Jesus instead of actually being in a relationship with Jesus. Like Jesus is some kind of product I can pull off the shelf and then take it to Kohl's and return it to Amazon when I don't need it. But that's how we treat him. Right? That's how the Corinthians are treating him. No, he's good. Thank you so much. But I'm just going to go do this because all my friends are there. Verse 21. Cannot drink the cup or partake in the table of the Lord and demons at the same time. Can't do it. Paul says it. He says, I want you to. He's like, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord. So the the blood, right? The, The blood that was spilled and the cup of demons at the same time. Right? There's a reason why oil and water don't mix. They never mix. And this is what Paul is saying here. You can't do both. You can't practice one way and then practice the other. And so there's a lot of things in the kingdom that are a both and. This is hard. There's a lot of things that are a both and, like truth and grace. That's like you believe that, right? There is truth and grace. Thank the Lord. Because I need grace as much as I need the truth. There's also God's justice and mercy, right? He's equally just and equally merciful at the same time, and they're held in tension, and they never overseed or supersede one another. There's also strength in submission, right? There is strength in Jesus as he submitted himself and didn't avail himself of his rights before Pilate. But the idle thing, the idle thing, because what is God's chief aim? Is God's chief aim to be in a relationship with us? Well, yes, but actually his chief aim is in our relationship with us, we make the most of him. That's what God's about, his glory, because he is God and we are not. So the idle thing, it's an either or, unfortunately. It's not a both and, and it's certainly not a neither nor either. It's certainly not an either nor. We have to pick a side. And so and as Paul ends the, our passage this morning, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy, are we stronger than he? Because when God is provoked in jealousy, people fall. Things happen. And so can you imagine, I just want you to put yourself in the mind as we are getting close to wrapping. Can you imagine what the Israelites felt like when they fell? Speaking of falling, they crossed the sea. They ate the bread. They were rescued from Egypt. They were rescued from the hands of them of those that abused them. They drank the water. They came all the way. They came all the way. For 40 years, they came all the way. They got in sight of the promised land and still chose for themselves a God according to their rules, which is no God at all. And the truth is, just like the Israel, just like Corinth, there's a reason why Paul keeps hammering this stuff because they're like, well, why can't we do this? Because it's not good. 
That's why Paul says it. It's not good. It's not helpful. And the truth is that we do this still today. We know what Christ has done for us. We have the Word and the Holy Spirit, yet we leave little room to pursue Him and instead pursue others. Pursue others. Pursue others. So as we close, I want to turn your attention back to verse 5 for just a minute. Verse 5, I'll read it again. Yes, it's that verse. I don't know why I need to read it, but I'm going to read it. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the desert. And so that Greek word for overthrown, you can be like, well, I get what he means. The Greek word for overthrown, as in the 23,000 were overthrown, is catastronomy. Catastronomy. That's the Greek word for overthrown. And literally it means to spread out or to strike down. That's why it's sitting there in the text, because the Greek is trying to, you know, trying to communicate, well, God's jealousy spread out, and as a result of the spreading, there was a striking down because they chose themselves over God. Similar to, and you've seen it used at other places in the Bible, like similar to bad kings, like that bad king was kicked out, right? Or cities, or nations. We get our word, by the way. It's funny how the conversation that was happening earlier this morning. From catastronomy, we get our word catastrophe. You ever use that word? You ever heard that word? Catastrophe. So, but here's the funny thing. Here's the difference between a Corinth reader and a modern day hearer. So when we think of catastrophes, we don't think bodies typically, right? Sometimes we do, but more than not, we think natural disasters. That was a catastrophe, right? That, the drought that the Southwest is in, that's a historic drought. You've been reading about it. That's a catastrophe, like the floods that happened. Those are catastrophes. Tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes, sometimes mass shootings, terrorism, which have all become the symbols of death and destruction in our society and in the world, right? Catastrophes. But here's the reality. The reality is this, is when we have unchecked idols with unchecked access to our hearts, my question is, is how much catastrophe can our hearts take? How much? How much? We watch the news or social media thinking those things never happen, right? Like, that drought's been in Arizona. That hurricane is in Florida. It'll never happen here locally, right? That's the thing with catastrophes. We're like, no, we're good. That happened over there. We're probably going to be okay. And unbeknown to us, our hearts are catastrophically far from God because of the idols we have allowed to either operate or we have given ourselves to. But yet we have, and here's the good news, we have a God who is so forgiving that in Jesus extends a hand to us and calls us to lay down the albatross that is in our own hearts and hands. So the band's going to come back up. And so I know it, and this is a hard word, but Paul says it to the Corinthians because he loves them. He loves them. He wants to challenge. He wants to challenge them to move beyond just where they are. And when it comes to our hearts, I want to challenge our hearts too because I've got them too. And they're a hard thing to get rid of, right? And so the band's going to play a response song. And while they're getting ready, I just want to pray over us this morning. And so, like, if you need to let go of an idol today, I pray that you do. If you need to double down on your affections for Jesus, I pray that you do. If you need to come forward for prayer during or after the song, there'll be people in the front if you want to do that. But the reality of it is, is the only room that we have in our heart, this is so funny, 
right? There was no room for Mary and Joseph at the inn, right? Like we know that. And Jesus was famously born in a manger in a stable. There is only room for one at the end of our hearts. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. So Lord, as we sing and we think and we contemplate and just as a response, God, I'm thankful that, gosh, if my life is dependent upon me getting rid of the idols and not you, man, I'm in trouble. And God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the hand that you've extended through your death and burial. And as we come to grips with just what it means to, to be modern people in a modern world, don't let us forget this ancient truth that there is only room for you and only room for one. And so as we sing, Holy Spirit, as you're speaking, um, I pray just one, that we would be open and honest with ourselves, maybe with each other. Maybe we need to have a conversation with someone. I don't know. But I pray too, Lord, that this grace that you died for and that you bled for and you resurrected for would just be washed anew in the spirit as we sing. And I pray, I know a lot of us, you know, some of us are doers in this room. I'm one of them. And so for me, it's really hard when I fall. I make it doubly hard on myself because I knew I shouldn't have done it or I knew I should have gotten this right instead. And, and I spend a lot of time looking back on the things I've gotten wrong as opposed to looking forward to the opportunities in the present and in the future of the things that I get to do right because I'm in a relationship with you. I pray for them. For those that aren't willing to even, maybe have never thought about it. But today would be a day, not of judgment, but one of grace and opportunity. And so again, as we sing, God, I thank you that our life is dependent upon you and it's eternally secure. Because you were so good and I don't so deserve it, but yet you did it anyway. And Lord, I'm thankful. No matter what happens, I'm thankful. And so as we sing, Lord, may you receive the glory. It's in your name.